Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spawn Camp. Each week, we focus on the games and media that we love and the positive things that set them apart. I am Angel. I am a game programmer and developer in Mount Dora, Florida. And this week, I am joined by two other guests, which are amazing. And you've heard of them, possibly. Tony Ray out in London. How are you? I'm doing well, but I am a graphic designer, and I love to hop into these chats to share some input on how things look and come together in our designs. And who's that over there? I can see it on a video chat that you guys can't see listening to this. Hi there. With the face for radio, it's Trey. I produce games and technologies out in Mount Dora, Florida. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can see it. It's not. We're going to do a video podcast and prove you wrong one day. Oh, God. But we are all gathered here today on this, the spooky day. This is not when the podcast will air, but it is currently Halloween. We just wanted to talk about some stuff that we think a lot about. Maybe isn't necessarily topical stuff, but (laughs) we always have these topics kind of rattling in our heads because... Uh, the three of us and often other guests we bring on are people who know stuff about creating media, either games directly or in Tony's case, graphic design, which I think is kind of permeates through all media, whatever it is. And I feel like whenever we talk about stuff, we give it this perspective of like, okay, how did they make this? And it's almost annoying. <laughs> I know it's annoying to like play video games with me because I'm always doing the same thing. And This week, we wanted to talk about, in particular, the monetization of games and how that media has sort of set itself apart in how it tries to do that. But before, we are going to kind of catch up and what we've all been doing. I'll start with Tony. What are you up to? Hello. I've been watching a handful of different things. I know that recently we discussed Midnight Mass together, but... I have been partaking in other mildly scary things, one of which is designed more to spook children. There is a new Goosebumps-type show on Disney Plus called Just Beyond, and it is produced in accordance with R.L. Stein, I believe, but all the stories seem pulled from various properties that he's done, and some of them are quite poignant and done in a way that you can actually get a good moral out of it, or it covers a topic in a nuanced way. Some of them, not so much. Ones that come to mind immediately uh, in the good example department is they have one of a girl is being haunted by this spooky ghost with a mask, and it only comes around whenever she's feeling nervous or anxious. And she starts to realize that her mom has also encountered this ghost, so she's not seeing things. And she talks to her mom about it, and she's like, this is a family curse. He only shows up when you're feeling a certain kind of way, but you can overcome it. And she asks, you know, like, you know, how did you defeat it? And she's like, he never goes away. You just kind of have to learn to live with it and make peace with it. And then you can kind of overcome those things on your own. And it was a really good... I smell a metaphor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It felt like a really good lesson in dealing with anxiety and nervousness and how, you know, it's not something necessarily to be defeated. But coming to peace with it can be just as good. And it led to some very comical situations where she, like, boards a roller coaster and the creepy guy is sitting right next to her. And she's just blank-faced, like, that seat's taken. 
And then the episode ends with the roller coaster going down and the monster like riding. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And in the not so great example department, although it was a entertaining and well executed episode, they have one that kind of takes shots at Instagram like apps. And it stars a girl that's kind of a math geek quiz queen. And she is allured to the idea of a glow up or how it takes place in the episode. She is turned on to an app that has magical properties that can physically alter her appearance based on what filters and stuff that she uses. They literally have that app like out in the east, but... Well, it's it's like she selects it and then her, her actual body changes. Um, oh, in real life. And she takes it too far and and becomes more monstrous than whatever her version of appealing is and ends up going and, and finding the teacher that tricked her into this and, and getting her original look back as well as a lot of people that she trapped. And the moral of the episode ends with her like being told that she went too basic and that being basic is, an, is a detrimentally bad thing. And overall kind of pitting all people that look a certain way in a negative light and the desire to look a certain way in a negative light. And it left a really bad taste in my mouth because it's like, you can achieve this thing without putting others down. Like, you can achieve this message of, mm. like, love yourself without also saying, fuck beautiful people or people that want to be beautiful in their own way or whatever. It was a misguided lesson in that one, but the execution of it was well done. So... I think there's only about 10 episodes. It's very, very easy to consume. It's not the most high level of actual content. So if you just want to waste mm-hmm. some time, it's available for you on Disney+. Plus. That <laughs> that show is just beyond. They should put that review <laughs> on the back of the I box. have that analogous episode in mind from That's So Raven where it was the supermodel one. And, you know, Raven wants to become like a supermodel and walk the runway with her fashion designs. And it approaches eating disorders and how it can be harmful to pursue those looks, you know, unhealthily, which I think is the main object that's, you know, actually of concern is that you don't want to hurt yourself, like going for those kinds of looks rather than because like, you know, working out is isn't bad in and of itself overworking out and starving yourself and, you know, trying all these like quick thin diets are going to be detrimental to you. But yeah, like, it's not that the goal of beauty is bad. You should be a writer at Disney. <laughs> Please I'll put in me. my resume. But yes, um, for myself, I have been what? watching the Belinda Carr YouTube channel. And Belinda Carr is an architect who talks about kind of architecture trends that don't usually get a whole lot of light shit on them. Like if you know the shipping container houses thing, like it'll show up in your Facebook with all the, you know, that quirky look on it on the inside. And there are these fashionable houses made of shipping containers and why, you know, that's really not sustainable as a practice or why it might actually be like detrimental to a certain place or like how 3D printing is used to make homes and how that's really not as easy as they want want to make it look for like their own purposes. The short of it is that 3D printing is cool. And personally, I love 3D printing. It is not ready for housing yet. I can, (laughs) if you're lucky, you know, then you can get something small printed without any issues. But a house, you know, it's just walls. Like you can 3D print the walls. Ultimately, that's not a house. It's going to need plumbing. It's going to need electricity and all of these other like comforts to like come with it. And also you have to do work so that it doesn't look like that sort of corduroy 3D printed texture. So it doesn't look bad. But Belinda does a really good job of breaking down like the processes of those 
and like how architecture can be sustainable and such. I've seen those videos where they 3D print the walls and stuff and it's just solid concrete. And I'm like, so there's no, no. pipes, there's no electricity, no one needs anything to go in there. It's just, we just need a box. That's how people <laughs> but live, But they right? say stuff like, oh, they, they made this house in three days. And it's like, no, you printed the walls in three days. Also, it probably took them like two weeks to set up the printer. Yeah, that's a whole other thing too. It, <laughs> it takes a lot of infrastructure, a whole lot of materials and cost going into that just because that's not a normal thing. But yeah, the long story short is that uh, there's a reason that the people who make and the people who develop houses around you use certain materials. It's because they're more cheap and more sustainable than 3D printing right now. So maybe in the okay. future, 3D printing can come along and do something cool. But right now, it's definitely not ready for like the scale of just being every home. Okay, that said, behind my house, there's construction. And they have been making a ton of noise putting up walls. Mm-hmm. And I would like them to 3D print them instead. <laughs> so hopefully one day soon. Hopefully. But, okay, so I've been reading the book Truth of the Divine by Lindsay Ellis, which is a sequel to uh, Axiom's End by Lindsay Ellis, because that's how (laughs) sequels work. (laughs) And Lindsay Ellis is a YouTuber. So she's part of those, part of that group of YouTubers colloquially called BreadTubers, which I love that term. But basically they're they have those long like hour to two hour to sometimes longer video essays about topics often about media but then kind of relating them to society or psychology or something interesting like that super long form like youtube videos and she would always talk about i don't know like fandom and fan fiction and literature and i think it's great that she just went off and like actually wrote a book and it's unironically very, very, very good. <laughs> I like it a lot. It's like sci-fi. Um, it, so it's the second part in a series. And the second book is even better than the first one. And the funniest thing about it is that you can tell it's her Transformers fan fiction. I knew it! <laughs> but made much better. And it's so <laughs> funny because she has like a video about Transformers and like that fan fiction. And how she would do it better. And then she, uh, you know, she put her money where her money Oh, man. Was. Like she... Well, her time, right? Like, she, like, wrote the mm-hmm. book. She did it. I'm excited to read it now. She put actions behind those words. And uh, it's very, very good. So, been having fun with that. And the way I bought that media was I pre-ordered it, and it showed up at my house, and I paid money, and now it's mine. It's a physical book that is mine. And the reason I bring that up is because today's topic is about how that's not always the case with digital media, especially recently. And... It's an interesting topic, like, to put a name on it, uh, how video games make money, or better yet, how they charge their players, like the consumers of that media, to play their game, because it's really not as simple as it used to be. I actually took, like, a, like a college class, and I'm trying to remember which one it was, because I got a degree in game design, so there was a bunch of college classes, but... One of them, I remember we went over mobile games and their monetization. And just kind of in general, we sort of learned about this subject, casual games class. I actually loved that class. I think it was really cool because it was putting together games that were kind of smaller. Whereas the other classes were sort of the the kind of role play we were all doing is that we were pretending we were making Mm -hmm. big games at big studios. 
and <laughs> that'll prepare us to make you know big games at big studios but in reality you know we're a bunch of students making little games so having a class that was about that i think was refreshing oh definitely but in that class we learned about monetization and the kind of techniques that go into it and they can often be really sinister so one thing i wanted to focus on on this kind of very brief sort of conversation about monetization is that it's really easy to slip into the sinister of it and i think we all know that games can really do that (laughs) but i also just kind of want to talk about them as trends right like just like over time and sometimes it can be a good thing even when games aren't sold normally so I I brought this topic up for us to chat about a few days ago, and it came up because I know that both of my parents are avid listeners of the show, and I often uh, probe them for information about, like, you know, what would you like to hear about? Because I think they represent a part of our audience who might be relatively unfamiliar with games or the industry and want to learn more about it from an outsider perspective. And my dad brought up a game that he and I had played together when I was younger, Final Fantasy XI which was one of the first MMOs that I had been exposed to. And he shared with me something that I hadn't even known. He was like, when you and your brother would go off to bed, I would play it and grind for you so that when you come back in the morning, your stuff would be better. And there was this shared experience. And I wanted to start with some positivity, ways that it may not be in cities Mm -hmm. where it's like you're, you're paying membership into something where you can be a part of something bigger than yourself. And yes, that becomes cancerous in certain hands but yeah i wanted to start there with something nice about it and it is worth noting that monetization in general is super necessary like if we sold like you know mmo games for 60 dollars one time and like that was it they would not be able to support you know keeping that content up to date maintaining it upgrading and adding new things and it's neat that games can approach the sort of longevity with a more recurring monetization model now because without it it's just not possible you would be able to like publish one thing and then you know that's it it's just flash in the pan and it's gone and like being able to use that to support like new social aspects and all kinds of like things that we never conceived of before is cool in that you know it it requires money to one to research in some cases and two to actually like execute but yeah there there is definitely a lot of what people would consider, you know, darker to the aspects of monetization. I can tell you, unfortunately, video games cost a lot of money to make, mm-hmm. which more than ever. Yeah. And you see a lot of stuff online where people in games communities are often openly discussing how best to not pay money for games. Like it's a very common trend online to. Not just to like go directly to pirating, although there, obviously there's huge you know communities of people pirating. Just recently, Metroid Dread came out on Switch, and there was a whole like an actual article, not from a small publication, that like mentioned that it was piratable on PC for people who didn't have a Switch. And there was a lot of discourse about that. All right, but also just people in general are always saying, "Well, you can save money this way, or you can not <laughs> support the author basically in this other way." So it can be difficult for companies to fund the kinds of games that they want to make and that people want to play because every year that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And having kind of interesting (laughs) asterisks monetization practices can often help achieve that goal because ultimately these games, like these big MMOs, 
and other like long-lasting games as a service, and we'll talk about that, are enabled, like Trey said, by this stuff. You can't just sell a game once and be able to make a game like this because even mechanically, like the the servers and the computers that need to run an MMO cost insane amounts of money every month to run those. And one, one kind of interesting thing is that Final Fantasy XI was part of that kind of first wave of MMOs back in the early 2000s. And around that time and before then, I think games were still predominantly, there were some, uh, there's there like a few kind of small exceptions, but games were, for the most part, a single release product. They didn't patch them or add downloadable content after you would just buy the game once, own it, and play it. And it wasn't until games like Final Fantasy XI and, and definitely like World of Warcraft and EverQuest these games got so big and as a necessity of the type of game that they were and also because the internet was subscription-based around that time like you'd have to pay you know america online or something to get online in the first place for some of the early online games it made sense for them to slip into a subscription model and if that would have failed i think games would have never gone over to something like a subscription but they did so ludicrously well World of Warcraft in particular just like started an empire at Blizzard by how much money they they made just on that game and how much they were making every single month. It was a completely different way to fund a video game. So I think that kind of led to other games start to adopt other things. And uh, I think the other example is probably something like League of Legends, which is a game game as a service, if you want to dive into that now. But there was like another revolution, right? Like in... I don't know what year really League of Legends totally took off, but now like every game is like, well, this game lasts forever and you just buy skins or cosmetics. It's been a change over time of do we, you know, have them pay up front and then have the experience? Do we have them pay subsequently and continue to adjust and cater the experience? Do we have them pay nothing up front and then hope that they'll buy in in some other way? Or do we even have them pay nothing up front, and then continue to monetize them over time. There's all these different approaches now where it's like, you know, the money is there. How do we get to it? And how do we incentivize players or interest them? Because it's not just like trying to trick someone into giving you their money. It's like they want to be offering you something of value for the most part. I find a personal litmus test for me that makes me wary is if I try to top into any game and they have like more than one or two types of currency. If they've got, like, yep. five currencies that's all just, like, you know, there's not going to be a one-to-one equivalent, it gets really, really daunting. And sometimes it can be really tricky stuff, like, I'm not playing it anymore right now, but in a, the mobile game Marvel Future Revolution, they have gold, crystals, free crystals, <laughs> to, like, all these different dimensional tokens that happen for the events. They've got all these different tickets that you can use for all the different things to exchange. There's at least like 15 to 20 different kinds of like currencies that you can be exchanging. And that starts to get really, it's not just confusing for the player to like try to sift through it. Makes you not even want to engage with any of the different economy, you know? At least one of them has to be a crystal. That's a law. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mobile games are really kind of, they're almost an outlier for how much they take those darker aspects of monetization or game addiction or again, like I took a class on literally the patterns having multiple currencies, for example, it obfuscates 
can't pronounce things today. But it, it kind of hides from the player the fact that they're spending direct money. Like if they see an item in the game and it says, you know, five ninety nine, that reminds them too much of dollar bills and that they have to ask their parents for exactly, you know, six dollars. But if it's like crystals or whatever, it makes it way too easy. And there's definitely non-mobile games that do a ton of that. Fortnite always comes to mind for me. And a lot of the, I mean, there's all sorts of games, like the sports games do it all the time now. A lot of the like annual release, like Call of Duty type games do it. And it's just, it's really prevalent. But I wanted to rewind really quick before I forget. And before even subscription models, I I always loved learning about the, oh man, what was the exact term? It was like... You know, shareware. Shareware. Ah. That's what it was. Thank you. So way back, and probably the biggest example was id Software and doing like Doom and before that like Wolfenstein. So these were PC games where the way they monetize them is they would make a single episode or like they'd release the, the beginning of the game like a couple levels completely for free. And at the time, people thought that was ludicrous. Like you're just giving out, first of all, you're paying for like the printing of discs and often they'd have to do it by hand. Like they'd go in the first floor of or the basement of their building and like box up their games. That was like common for studios back then. And they'd send out all these like freeware discs put them in magazines, put them in mailboxes, anything. And then people would play the first couple levels and get addicted to the game. And the premise is if they liked it enough, they'd pay a premium, like a pretty decent chunk of money for the next level or the next chapter. And there might be a series of them. And it turns out, partially because the games they made were amazing, that this was a very, very lucrative way to make games. And it's funny the way that kind of fell off. There are some games that do episodic stuff. I know like the Telltale games, I played Life is Strange and that was broken up into episodes. But for example, like the the newest Life is Strange, I think is internally cut up into three episodes, but the way you can buy it is you, you just buy all three. Like they came out at the same time. So shareware for whatever reason didn't take off as much as maybe microtransactions, but th- that was back there. And there was always kind of weird ways to monetize. I think alternatively, like, that was always just kind of ended up being demos, really. Like, games kind of transitioned from shareware directly into demos. And then that was how they got people yeah. interested in wanting to front the full full price for the game as they would just send out a slice. And people got used to that. And nowadays are, are wondering why demos exist don't exist anymore, which is a whole other discussion where it's like, games are way more complicated. Sorry, we're not yeah. going to make you, like... <laughs> an appetizer from an entire steak. It's just not going to happen. Sorry. It's hard to make. As a quick internal lens, demos are incredibly time-consuming to make at a studio because you need... Like, often all of the little details that make a game look good, like, good enough to be a demo because a demo is what's called a a vertical slice. So it's a, a very narrow, tiny part of the game, but it's the entire top to bottom like looks like the finished game and that includes little all the features all the playable aspects that you need exactly basically it's meant to represent the, represent the full experience and that includes even teeny tiny details like like little audio jingles and particle effects and just little things that make the game look good so often because that comes in super last minute sometimes in a game development but the demo needs to come out like months to a year before studios back when demos were a big thing so up until like the mid 
2010s, studios would often have a completely separate team of people working exclusively on a demo. And sometimes that demo wasn't even to give to players. It was to show at a trade show like E3. Probably the most recent big example that I can think of is God of War. So that game came out in 2018. So I think the 2017 E3 demo, sorry if I got my dates wrong, that one was being developed parallel. So you can imagine how difficult it is to make a game. Imagine making two, basically, and almost all of the work you put into that demo, you throw it out. If you actually compare like the God of War demo to the actual game, there's almost nothing shared between the two, which is which is shocking. Obviously, some core stuff like maybe animations and the gameplay needs to be somewhat representative, but like the lighting is completely different. So they had to go off and make a whole lighting system because the one in the real game wasn't ready yet. The entire area they're in, there's a bunch of aspects of it that have been changed or removed. So you can imagine how difficult it is to make a demo. And now that games aren't even coming out finished (laughs) in a sense, right? Like games are coming out and then they're patching them way after the fact. I can't imagine trying to have a big modern like 2021 AAA game spend the millions and millions of dollars it would cost to have a demo team while you're making the game. Like it's just, it's a lot. So I'm, I'm not surprised they're gone, but I do lament that they're gone because I think that was really fun. I have very distinct memories of getting those like PS1 demo discs that had like five games on them. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever got those. I know like the Xbox got those. Mm-hmm. I guess like the N64 didn't and the GameCube is maybe a little late for it. But like a magazine like Game Informer or something will release like discs with five different demos on them and you put it in, select the demo. And I remember like spending days playing like the Spyro skateboarding game. Yes. That one was like such an awesome demo. And I know a lot of people have told me similar anecdotes. They're like, oh, one of my favorite games was, you know, this one level from this one game because I never either could find or afford or for some reason never bought the full game. But they would play for weeks like a single map of some shooter because it was Mm -hmm. on a demo disc. Let's bring that back. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. For smaller games, please make smaller games, everyone. I remember when Halo 3, like, hadn't come out yet, but you could get access to the demo if you, like, did certain things. And so they actually teamed up with Rooster Teeth to make a little video that played before the Halo 3 demo. And they're like, congratulations, you are one of, you know, like, Bungie's, you know, biggest fans, and you must have shown a lot of dedication to this, or you bought Crackdown (laughs) 2. You know, I guess um, open betas are a similar That's kind true. of concept these days. Yeah. Especially multiplayer games, they'll they'll have a reason to need to like test their server. At that point, it basically is the finished game. Like they're just kind of tweaking some stuff. And yeah. it it's only a couple weeks before the game, but they'll let people play it. So I really want to hammer home that point cuz for anyone listening or for anyone who's deluded and thinks that anything can change, please please put some wrinkles on your brain. Betas are essentially the finished game. Do not ever yep. be like, this can change, this will get better, this will be fixed. It is a disservice to yourself and a disservice to the people making the game to have any misconceptions that the differences between the beta and the full release will be demonstrably different. It is the finished game. They're just stress testing servers at that point. Please don't trick yourself into thinking that something massive is going to change, where it's like, oh, this boss is broken or this character design is flawed or something guess what it's gonna ship like that maybe (laughs) down the line it'll be different but like 
Please tell your friends, tell everyone else, betas are just the game. It's not even a demo, really. It's just the yep. finished game being tested out. Please stop lying to yourself and everyone else that things will get fixed. I, end of rant, but man, it frustrates me. <laughs> I know frustra- it frustrates me, too. And I, I think there were some companies that have done a really good job of listening to their communities and developing over time that have kind of led to that be the expectation overall. Like when I think back at just how much Overwatch changed during its run from it's like Overwatch had a beta that was like a year before the game came out. And frankly, a lot of things changed based on community input until like from when that beta came out to the game, you know, quote unquote, really came out. And then since then, that game has changed a lot, too. And I think people started to get that kind of expectation where they'll go online and complain enough about a game that's like not even in development as much as like out already. And if they're loud enough and the community is, you know, passionate enough about something, it might happen. But I don't think that's right for every game. And you'll see it even on like single player games. People will like see a a trailer and they'll go onto the Twitter for that company. Like, Hey, so I noticed this in the trailer. Can we please, you know, by the time the game comes out, change this. And it's like, dude, if you have, you know, the $50 million it takes to redo like a, a whole level of that game, cough it up i'm sure they'll love to see it (laughs) but games are just massive now okay i wanted to try and brainstorm other forms of monetization and what kind of games they allow because i i know there's something i'm forgetting so we talked about subscriptions which are also kind of dying out Mm -hmm. i i I think it's alluded to microtransactions yeah i want to say that subscriptions have basically transformed and gotten a new name which is battle pass Oh, yeah, we should mention Battle Pass. That definitely is a subscription in a sense. Well, yeah, just as, you know, as a wrap up, I wanted to kind of at least touch everything, kind of do a sort of an overview, because there are a lot of ways that games are trying to solve this problem of like, hey, we want a bunch of people to play this game. We want it to be really enticing financially for people to pick up this game. But also every single year games get way, way more expensive. And the base price of a game, like the $60, I guess on PS5 now, they've upped it to 70 But that's like long overdue. Like even with inflation, games in previous generations cost so much more. So they need to kind of come up with some way to make that money back. So yeah, Battle Pass is a big one. So that's one where... You can play the game without the, the battle pass, which I think is kind of the important innovation. It's not a subscription. You don't have to pay the money. But then while you're playing it, the battle pass provides a ton of extra content, a bunch of like even progression things to look forward to. And people who are expecting to play that game for like a whole you know season, however the game defines that, I think it's usually like a month, then they can pay for this pass and get all that content for that month. And it almost acts as a subscription in that it lets the company have passive income in a sense, which is kind of what they were looking for. But it's not quite a subscription. Uh, I guess the only other one was DLC, which I kind of miss. And there is really good DLC sometimes, but there was a very short golden era where a game would come out and then like a really good DLC or downloadable content, like an expansion basically Mm -hmm. would come out, which to that end, PC game expansions have also died. And that was a cool monetization scheme. Yeah. You would just like have the base game 
and they would keep working on content for it. And then for, for like World of Warcraft, for instance, they would, you know, create a bunch of extra content that you could play, but you'd have to like pay, you know, a smaller fee than the initial game to actually have access to it. So you'd have Doom, whatever, and then there might be an expansion of like Doom, more hell, I don't know. But that would be like a, a smaller cost than the original game, but it would still be a cost, but it would give you a little bit of extra content. And there still exists that kind of stuff now, but they tend to release them as standalone experiences. I think I've heard it called like a... <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's an expansion, but it's also standalone. I've heard it called like stand expansion or something. But yeah, I've never heard that term. They're, they're doing this kind exactly of like 1.5 kind of games where it's like, it's not a full game. It's not a half game. It's just sort of a continuation, but it, it's releasing for relatively the same cost as the, the original full game. Spider-Man Miles Morales might be seen that way, where like yeah. the, the base Spider-Man game is quite expansive, but Miles Morales is an addition in ways, but not nearly as expansive as the original. That's true. And the interesting thing about DLC is way back in the 2010s, when it was kind of the peak time for that, it was expected. Every single big AAA game, while they were making the game, they knew DLC would come out. Like the publishers would always force it often on studios. So there would be a bunch of weird DLC for like the Bioshock games. I think they were always trying to like put DLC on them and just like all around that era. And they'd often have to start on the DLC before the game itself was finished, which kind of felt disingenuous because people were paying for, you know, what they expected would be a full game. But, and it was for the most part, but they definitely did have extra content that they were making and using the resources going towards the base game towards making like an expansion pack for the purposes of charging people for it. And I think that kind of got a bad rep. Okay. I think we covered it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's like a million more. We've scraped the surface. Yeah. We didn't even talk about loot boxes and crates and (laughs) gambling in general. I think we did an episode on that though. And that's too negative. (laughs) (laughs) well i'm happy to revisit it because it is a huge part of the industry and it will continue to evolve and change just like games as service and service games continue to evolve and change and it's something that we can revisit and just because something's negative doesn't mean we have to avoid it but we can certainly have more nuanced takes on it and takes on it from the industry because where a lot of people might hop on and be like developers asking for money is is gross and we should get all games for free and everyone should be able to play everything on everything the reality of that is very different and i like being able to talk to developers like yourself and other industry professionals who can like talk about it like an actual profession and as people that work in this field and their everyday lives are ruined because of how much time they're putting into us like we need to respect these people and the art that they put in because if the only thing that they really need more of right now is you know money or Uh, getting eyes on different social issues that are affecting them or even like more time off and not expecting to have to shift their entire life when a game is over i feel like those are basic things rather than just like rallying the point that all games should be free it's more complex than that yeah definitely that's true the other thing is that when it comes to gamers specifically it's like as developers and you know people supporting developers we've trained you to react like that's ultimately what a game is we put a stimuli in front of you, and then you react to it. So it's understandable why the community is so very, very active and, you know, how that can be both positive and negative in a lot of different ways. But in any case, it's understandable to an extent, like, that you can see that behavior. 
And yeah, that approaches a lot of broader topics like workplace conditions, you know, how developers are paid. That is definitely an like in our pocket kind of topic because that's a big one we can kind of always whip out and that's always kind of changing, not fast enough, but that's kind of always an evolving topic. But yeah, I think that concludes this one, although I did want to leave with I am curious what the future will hold because I think some of this metaverse stuff the stuff Facebook's doing, but I've been hearing about companies trying to make a metaverse for years now. And I'm super curious what monetization will look like there because we're seeing what will certainly be a massive like sea change in the way games are monetized and whether that's NFTs or blockchain or whatever. We'll see. (laughs) I'm going to throw up, Angel. (laughs) That's a nuanced topic. We can can get into that. There's, There's good and bad but (laughs) the point is there's going to be a massive amount of difference because i don't think any of the subscription models that we talked about today will perfectly slot into you know what facebook's making or what epic wants to turn fortnite and their you know unreal based platform into that's just going to be massively different and it's going to be content made by other users for the most part so how do you you know how are they going to monetize it how are the platform's going to monetize that big questions we will surely have an episode about that in the meantime if you want to reach out to us tell us what you think might happen or what your thoughts are about the monetization that currently and used to exist you can reach out to us at spawncamppodcast at gmail.com and spawn underscore camp on our twitter and instagram please rate and review it matters and we listen <laughs> and send us all sorts of different anything send us topics we'll we'll cover something and uh, if you want to reach me in particular i am at angel game dev on twitter where can they reach you trey you can find me on twitter at at trey game dev and tony is that at tony game dev uh i am not a game dev i don't think that i would actually have much sleep if i was a game developer <laughs> not like i have much sleep nowadays uh but if you wanted to reach me on Twitter or Instagram or most places, I am Tony Ray UK, as in United Kingdom. I did the smart thing with my username and gave everyone my full name and location. That's advisable, right? <laughs> I should make mine like my name and zip code. <laughs> where it's like obvious it's my zip code. But yeah, thanks so much for listening, everyone. We will catch you next time. And bye. Bye. Bye bye.